the thing I want to talk about here is just to give you some more fodder to hopefully make meditation and, and uh, looking at the scriptures uh, more helpful. Um, and I, there's the part of me that's like, oh, it's not like going to be spiritual enough to be worthy of like sharing it in front of the Blessed Sacrament. But Jesus is always in the tabernacle, so I should probably just get over it, right? So, um, so I want to just give some food for thought, some, some fodder for meditation, and also give some, um, how do I try this, uh, some balancing or maybe even a slight corrective to some things that automatically happen in our heads when we hear or read certain words or ideas or phrases in the scriptures. Um, and you've probably heard some of these things before, but it's good when we have somebody kind of clarify uh, a word or a phrase because our brains automatically go where they go, right? We don't even think about that. Um, if you stayed near the end of the last audiobook during dinner with Pope Benedict, uh, he was starting to get into this discussion of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and, and debates over what that means, right? And But one way or another, no matter what it means to a person, we have something in our head that clicks on when we hear that phrase. When you hear kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, you think of this. And for some, it's going to be one thing or some it's going to be something else. For some, it might be kind of a little bit of both. Um, but what can happen is we can just not even catch some of the stuff that's happening in the scriptures um, if we always just jump to our first thought, right? It's kind of like I was saying with, uh, you know, reading through the, the story of the shepherd coming to the shepherds coming to Bethlehem, you know, you just assume the story because you've watched how many cartoons and books and movies, right? You know, anymore, the passion of the Christ. It's funny. I had somebody ask me like, hey, do we know, was, was Mary Magdalene the woman caught in adultery? I'm like, no. Like, we feel almost utterly certain that Mary Magdalene is not the woman caught in adultery. Mel Gibson definitely said that he conflated the two for the sake of the, the smoothness of the narrative, but, like, nobody thinks they're the same person. But because people have watched The Passion of the Christ for, like, 15 years, we just kind of think, oh, yeah, because I've seen it so many times. So these are kind of things to hopefully... It's not trying to say no to anything that we think, but it's more like trying to widen something out to get more out of it. So the first uh, one is the word Christ. All over the place. I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of times it's in the New Testament. And most of us, when we hear Jesus Christ, the first thing we think is, if we're not, if we're not really careful, is almost like Jesus' full name, right? Like Father Joseph James Faulkner, right? You know, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right? It's just part of the name, part of, the, part of you know, whatever. So as if he would have a brother like Bill Christ or something like that. I'm kidding. That's a joke. That's horrible. Um, but, like, it's one of those... It, 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 we do it so instinctively, we just kind of treat it as his, like, first and last name. And most people know that's not correct, right? And then we think, well, okay, so Christ... You know, because they're asking him, you know, are you the Christ, right? Are you the one who was to come, right? You know, um, surely this was the Christ, right? Um, you know, and, you know, things like that. And so probably I think our next layer, if we're asking, like, what does this mean, is we assume that it's basically a marker or a title for um, the Son of God. And by that I mean specifically God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God that was in the beginning and then became flesh in John's Gospel. You know, that, that we're thinking of that it's, you know, the divine second person of the Trinity. 
But that's definitely not what the word means, right? Um, the word you probably know, Christ, literally means anointed. The chrism, the little bottle of oil that we put on babies' heads at, at baptism, that chrism just means oil in Greek. So someone who has chrism put on them is a Christos. They're an anointed one. All of us, all of us were Christoi at our, at our baptisms. We were all anointed. And then just this last Tuesday, all my sixth graders got Christoi again, right? They, they were anointed. Um, so, and even then, people are like, okay, well, then it means, like, um, you, we, we hear that, and so, like, we, we, we think, okay, so this is just, um, it means anointed, and then it means the divine Son of God who came to save us after Adam and Eve messed everything up. Yes, but no. And what I mean by that is, like, you can read through the Psalms, and sometimes they'll actually translate the word Christ in there, like, God will save his Christ, he will not let his Christ see um, see uh, decay and stuff like that, uh, or they'll translate it as God will not let His anointed see decay or whatever. That's hard because you can't help but singular or plural sometimes. You know, just like the Lord will take care of His anointed. You're like one or a hundred of them. Who are we talking about here? Anyway, my point being is that um, we know that people did not expect the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, to be the supernatural, divine person of God in the flesh on the earth because of how they act, right? Even, even the temptation, which we heard a little bit about today, um, you know, most exegetes would say that there's no way if the devil knew he was talking to the second person of the Trinity, he would have even tried to tempt him. It wouldn't make any sense, right? But if he thinks this is an anointed one, a king like David, even a really, really special king who has God's unique blessing, and he's come here... Why wouldn't you try and offer him all the kingdoms of the world? He needs them, right? If he's going to go conquer the Romans, he needs every kingdom. He'd, he'd be happy to have a million soldiers and all the power and wealth that he could get. But also, like, he's figured out it works, right? With every good guy, right? Like, Noah, you're a really good dude. You're the one man worth saving on this entire planet. But you're going to get drunk and be stupid after I save you on that ark, right? You know? Abraham, I've called you, you are literally my dude. You are my one chosen dude, and your people are my people, and I'm going to save the world through you and your, and your family. P.S., why did you, like, immediately then go into Egypt and then lie about who your wife was, right? And almost botched the entire thing by, like, not being able to have a son by her, right? Um, Moses, you know, doesn't get to go into the Holy Land, in the Promised Land, right? David, amazing, a man after God's own heart, but he fails. So why wouldn't the devil think that if there's another king like David, he could be like, if you don't like the cities, I got these pretty ladies sitting out sunbathing like David had. If you want to pick on any of them, you can do that too, right? I mean, David was easy to catch, right? All you needed was one pretty lady sunbathing on the roof, and boom, you know, he's, he's, he's toast, right? So the devil has good reason if he thinks that that is a human messiah. And that makes sense because nobody's words make sense if they're calling Jesus the Messiah. By the way, Messiah is just a Hebrew word for anointed, like, like Christ, Christos. It doesn't mean, it, it, it's the same idea. Nobody would be tempting him um, or asking him these questions if they thought he was the second person of the Trinity, right? They didn't know what the word meant, but if they thought he was God himself, right? All of the things that he says and does only make sense if they assume this is another David, a really, really good David. Maybe a David who won't make David dumb mistakes, right? But somebody who's like that. So what I'm saying is when you see Jesus Christ, make your head, force your head to say, Jesus the Messiah, or the Messiah has done this. When Paul uses it, it's a technical term. If Paul says, 
blah, 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 Christ, make yourself say the Christ or the anointed or the Messiah in your head. Because that's definitely what he means by it. Others might put them together, but Paul is using a technical term. So I tell you that because that will make certain passages come alive for you. That will make certain passages way more interesting. It'll make certain questions more interesting. Um, The King James Version notoriously messed this up because there's a line where Jesus says to the apostles, what say men of the Christ? Or what say men of Christ? Uh, That's the old version. And so they're thinking, like, what are people saying about me? Like, it's his last name. If you understand what say men of the Christ, then you might think, oh, the Christ is yet to come. But if you just translate and say, what do men say about the Messiah? Then you're going to say, oh, he'll be this. He should be able to do this. He'll save us from the enemies. That makes sense. But that required somebody phrasing it in a certain way, so it took away the temptation to just turn it into, you know, meaning the Son of God, the divine second person, etc. That was a long one. That's probably the longest one total. Very closely connected to that one is Lord. Lord is a very interesting word in both the Old and the New Testament, right? We know that God reveals his name and his person to, to certain people, like, you know, to Abraham, he calls and reveals himself in a certain way. Moses, he tells him more at the burning bush, I am who am, right? And when people ask you who sent you, tell them, you know, I am sent you. Okay, so he's got more about that name, right? When Moses even gets to see the back of God as he goes across the side of the mountain, that's the closest anyone got to seeing God in the Old Testament, right? At least, and live, right? And then, and, and then that's, that is kind of where they begin to think, man, we shouldn't even say his name. So, right, we know that the, the divine name is like pushed off to the side and they just say Lord, which is Adonai. You've probably heard that before. And then the, that's why you always have those uh, little small, like small caps, small capital letters in your Bible. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's like Lord, but it's done like, like short little chubby letters. And it says Lord. That's its way of telling us it's this name but it's been covered over by the Hebrews with Adonai, which means Lord. The reason I bring that up is that there are times it's confusing. So Psalm 110, which is done on Sunday night at evening prayer, the traditional way of saying it is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right. Your foes I will put beneath your feet. And that's super confusing. The Lord said to my Lord. But that's what it says in Greek and in Latin, so people just put it there. But the problem is in Hebrew, it's saying Yahweh, he who is, I am who am, said to my Lord, Master, Boss, sit at my right, your foes I will put beneath your feet. In the brief, it actually translates as, the Lord said to my Master, trying to keep it separate. The idea of one is like, God of gods, Lord of lords, and the other one is just my boss, right? But that's, that's an important distinction. Are we talking about someone who's just like in charge, or are we talking about someone who created the universe it gets very interesting when you move into the new testament though because they kind of let the word slip on purpose they let it stretch when they when paul says christ the lord does he mean christ the boss christ the king jesus the king right um that he is he saying the the uh the messiah is the king or is he saying the messiah is divine And it's really, really hard in Paul to tell, and I think he does it on purpose. I think Paul purposely does that so that it kind of stretches his people's minds about who is the Lord God? How is Jesus the Lord God? How does Jesus talk to and follow and obey and love and serve the God of heaven? And yet Jesus is also 
God in the flesh, right? And so he does, I think, that purposely to make the word stretch. I guess what I'm saying with that one is just when you see the word Lord, ask yourself, what, what actually makes sense here? What are we saying when we see this? When we, see this? When we say that, um, you know, the, the hymn, we just did an evening prayer, right? Um, I can't do the whole thing off the top of my head, right? But it begins with, you know, uh, though his likeness was divine, he did not deem equality with the Father something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, and was in the likeness of men, right? And then he even died the death of, of, of the cross, so that uh, at his name, every knee shall bend, every knee in heaven, in heaven and on the earth, and every voice cry out, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's a rough paraphrase. Um, but what, it's, what it actually does is it takes an incredibly strong monotheistic passage from Isaiah and takes it to describe how God is one but more than one. So it's like Paul is like purposely saying, like, God is one. This is the most monotheistic thing we have, this section of Isaiah. And yet we're also going to say in here that God is God and Jesus is Lord. And you're like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. So like if we think that like, oh, getting stuck on the Trinity is a new thing, no. Nah. Even Paul is like, I don't have words to describe this and it's always going to be hard. So I'm just going to make sure that from like day one when you're reading the New Testament, your brain is toast with it already. It's like he did it on purpose. Related to that, going to do uh, one more in this direction, is Son of God. If you're listening closely at the, um, at the dinner table, uh, it talks a little about how uh, the apostles purposely, intentionally went after things that Caesar did. Like, this is pretty intense. Like, right, Caesar owns the known world, and Caesar killed Jesus. Jesus was killed by Pontius Pilate in Caesar's name. We should say it that way, right? And he does not like rebellion. And Paul, if you start tracing the towns that Paul hits, and then the ones he writes letters back to because he started churches there, he doesn't pick old towns. He picks new towns or cities that have a new part of their town that are Roman colonies. He specifically goes to places in the, the Greek world where Roman generals, after they got done, said, hey, man, I'm going to give you, you know, 40 acres and a mule, you know, take a spot here. And so, like, when he goes to Philippi, when he goes to Ephesus, when he goes to Corinth, those are Caesar towns. Those are Roman colony towns. And he does it, like, directly. It's like he's going head-on at the cult of you know, the emperor is divine in some way, right? And why is he divine? Because he's the son of God. And the Son of God is a term that, yes, gets used in the Old Testament, right, to describe the anointed, the Messiah, the one who's like David. And it's definitely a term that we use to refer the idea that Jesus is incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, becoming man, right? But Caesar uses it to say, I'm the boss, my father was divine, and so therefore I have command over things. So, as it said, when he uses good news... That's stealing a Caesar idea. Good news is the announcements, the proclamations that they say, you know, uh, about how, how Caesar's empire is going. Son of God, that's a Caesar term. Let's steal that, right? And, um, and, and what's the other one I'm missing? Gospel, Son of God. I said one earlier. Nope, it's gone. Okay. 
Anyway, like, oh, and just the fact that they're going, he's going to Caesar's towns, right? He's purposely, he's purposely running at that. Another one that pops up is there's a place where, where Paul says, you know, if somebody comes to you saying, you know, peace and prosperity, you know, good fortune, whatever, that was a line that the emperors used to say, come join the empire without a war and you can have all the benefits of our economy, all the benefits of our safety. We promise you safety and peace. That was a big phrase, safety and peace. Come join the Romans, you get safety and peace, right? And they're saying, don't take safety and peace as the world gives it because that's not real safety and that's not real peace, right? What Jesus is offering is real peace. That's a different kind of thing. So anyway, it's interesting to watch. And then it makes you really think, when that centurion stood below the cross and looked up and said, surely this was the Son of God? I don't even know which one he meant, but all of them are pretty amazing for a Roman centurion to say, right? If he's thinking, oh, like Caesar is, that's weird. If he's thinking like the Jews' king, maybe... But if he's thinking, like, something about God himself, then it's really weird. Like, we don't know what the centurion means, but you can ponder that for a good long while and get some fruitful stuff out of there. I just mentioned gospel, so I don't even have to mention that one here. Flesh. That's an interesting one. you got to watch how it's used. Some of you might be familiar with this from other places, but, like, there are times when Paul talks about the flesh that we assume he means body, and it's very clear in context that he doesn't, Right? Um, what he's talking about is our fallen nature. Um, and so, like, because he'll include things like pride as part of flesh. Well, pride is utterly interior. It's utterly non-physical. It's utterly a, a choice that we make within our free will and our soul, right? There's no flesh to pride. But when you see him talking about the works of the flesh, he's talking about our fallen sinful nature, not our bodies. Otherwise, we fall into the whole, like, soul good, body bad, right, uh, approach to, to stuff, and that's, and that's a heresy, right, the idea that, you know, or even like heaven good, earth bad, no, that's not okay, right, because then the sacraments get thrown out the window, our bodies get thrown out the window, Jesus' incarnation is actually a scandal, more than it's already a scandal, it's actually a bad thing, very tricky. Law. Law has a, is a word that over the last 500 years has been grabbed and misused, right, um, the law in the Old Testament, and then as Paul talks about the law, when you, when you see that, um, Paul always or almost always doesn't mean law as in, like, the law. Like, you know, I fought the law and the law won, right? You know, or, you know, the, you know we're going we're gonna to send the law after you. He doesn't mean that. And he doesn't even mean, like, I broke the law in the terms of just I generally did something wrong. Um, and he doesn't even mean, like, the Ten Commandments. The law to Paul means the Torah, the whole of the Torah, which means, yeah, there's some rules in there, but there's also a story. Abraham is part of the Torah, right? Genesis is part of the Torah. Um, uh, all the rest of the story of those first five books is part of the Torah. And then the rest of the Old Testament is connected to that. So when you hear Paul talking about, like, what the law made him do, or what the law made him aware of, don't fall for Martin Luther's mistake of thinking, like, that means anything that tells me do this, don't do that is always automatically bad. What he's saying is, the Torah showed me that I was a sinner. The Torah showed me how I fit in God's plan. The Torah showed me that I can't do what Torah asks of me, right? So force yourself to say Torah instead of law. Force yourself to say Messiah instead of Christ, and you'll be amazed at what the difference of things that comes out. How about kingdom of heaven? That, I already mentioned that a little bit. Let's go farther. Mark and Luke say kingdom of God. 
And that's pretty, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that idea. Problem is, Matthew says kingdom of heaven. And when we hear kingdom of heaven, what do you think of? This is probably the number one place where our brains go in a certain direction, right? You think kingdom of heaven, you think heaven, right? You will not be admitted into the kingdom of heaven if you don't have this. You're like, oh, that means I don't get to go to heaven when I die, right? But if you actually follow through what both Matthew's saying for kingdom of heaven and Mark and Luke are saying for kingdom of God, when you look at those two, they're talking about stuff in this world. I mean, the most obvious thing is that we say in the Our Father, which we say how many times in a week, right? We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, by definition, we're saying, I want your kingdom here on earth. I want, peop- I want the rule of God to be here on earth. I want to, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'm missing one. The one before that is, hallowed be thy name. We're praying for three things to be on earth as they are in heaven. The name to be hallowed, the kingdom to come, and thy will to be done. We're praying for all of those. And that's what Jesus' job is. It's, it's to inaugurate this kingdom of heaven on earth. If you think that, if you look through the parables, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to things that, by definition, aren't done yet, right? He talks about how, um, probably the best example is, you know, the guy goes out into his field and sows good seed. And then while he sleeps, an enemy sows bad seeds. Tares is the, is the common word for it. But we can also say weeds and wheat. Sows the weeds among the wheat. And then a couple days later, as they start coming up, all the servants are like, Lord, did you not do good seed? Right? So, in other words, Lord, I thought you went out and preached the gospel. Look at these idiots. Look at their sinning. Look at all their badness. Look at that church. It sure is fallen and scandalous and wrong and dirty and imperfect and, you know, run by celibate white males, you know, whatever. Like, it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're just, you know, all those things are, are, it's bad. And then he says, okay, you're right. You're right. But don't rip the bad out now. Wait till harvest time. We're going to go out. We're going to take out the bad and put it in the fire. And then we'll take out the good and put it, you know, in, in, in the barns for storage. The very next parable is them cleaning out their nets saying the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that picks up all this stuff, and they sit around putting things into buckets. Good fish here, nasty fish over here. Good fish here, what on earth is that? Over there, right? Sorting, sorting, sorting. And he says that's how it'll be at the end of the age, right? But he's saying the kingdom of heaven is what's going on now, and at the end, the kingdom will be sorted, right? So for most of history, it's been understood the kingdom of heaven is either the church itself or this thing that's meant to encompass the world as the church, the faith, the baptized grow and expand it and go out. There is, of course, a sense in which that's not a complete kingdom, right? Because Jesus talks about the kingdom as having a lot more stuff in it. But that's the whole point, right? As we talked earlier about with Martha and the idea that, you know, she's saying, you know, Lord, I know he'll rise on the last day. And all Jews pictured this, like, the present age and the age to come. The last day is the divider. But what Jesus does when he gets resurrected, he is the unique example of somebody who is from the age to come, coming into our life, right? He leaps backwards, if you will. He gets the effect of resurrection while in the midst of this timeline, right? So there's always going to be this sense in which the kingdom has already started. God's work has already started. The age of the spirit has started, but it's not completely done yet, right? 
and we await the day that it gets completely done. So the kingdom of heaven, yeah, there's still some work to be done on it. It's, it's, it's still imperfect. And every time we sin, it gets less perfect. And every time we do good, it's, it's more perfect, right? But it's not just knocking on the doors of heaven, right? It's, it's, it's something about heaven being present on earth. Quick comment on that. This will help a lot. Don't think of heaven as an up-down kind of thing. Or if you do that, realize that that's just a metaphor, or just an image. Heaven is more like the backstage of a musical, right? There's the visible stuff out front. Everybody's on the stage, and that's what seems like Earth, our space, right? But God and his angels are behind the scene. They can see everything. They can interact on the scene, right? But they are in a different space. This helps understand, like, how Jesus can, like, pop up one place and then pop up another, right? He's kind of like going backstage and switching spots on, on the stage or whatever. It, it helps a lot to understand that. That way, you know, we're not thinking that Jesus at the ascension took off into space and just kept going until they got past Jupiter or something and suddenly, you know, now he's, now he's you know, in heaven or whatever. It's, it's more like understanding that there's God's space and our space. And through the Old Testament into the New, there's places where those two worlds connect and interact, right? So... Eden itself, the Garden of Eden, was a place where heaven met earth, right? And God could walk familiarly with Adam and Eve. After that, there's places where it seems the, 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 the barrier breaks, right? Jacob can see a ladder going up into heaven, right? Uh, Moses can hear a voice coming out of this bush, right? The, the pillar of cloud and fire that, that lead them through the desert. And then finally, God's glory settling down in that wilderness tabernacle, that big tent at the end of Exodus. And that wherever they, they go, God stays with them. Solomon builds a temple and that glory stays there. And then when that glory leaves, right before the, the great exile, Ezekiel sees the glory of God like take off and fly off into the east, which is not a good sign. If God's glory leaves your temple, you're about to be toast right? Like, you've run. If God's glory is leaving, the problem is Ezekiel's over in Babylon, so he has no way to, like, send a text to Jerusalem being like, dude, look out, they're coming for you. Anyway, um, but then when Jesus comes, now heaven really is walking around earth, right? If, if heaven is God's space, Jesus is heaven on earth, right? It's like, Bennett was saying at dinner, right? The idea that, you know, what do you get? You don't get a perfect kingdom. You don't get a perfect, you know, political systems. You don't get perfect economies. What you get is God. With Jesus, you get God. And that's a pretty good deal. Jesus brings you God. And so everywhere he is, there is God. And so when he goes into the temple, a temple which has been emptied out, destroyed, rebuilt, and rebuilt again, right? When he comes in, this is why there's this headbutt between Jesus and the temple, because he's got something the temple doesn't have. He is something that the temple is not, right? And there's a reason why there's this kind of like showdown between, between the two then, right? And of course, what does Jesus tell us? After he dies and resurrects, 40th day, he's about to leave, right? So God is going to go back to God's space and not be there on, in, in human space anymore, human, the human realm, right? But what's he say? I'm not really leaving, right? He says, I will be with you always until the end of the age, and I think it's Leo the Great, I think, who gives us the great image of when Jesus ascends into heaven, his physical presence passes over into the sacraments, right? So the water that baptizes, the oil that anoints, and most literally the bread and wine that are transubstantiated, those are where heaven meets earth, 
So the tabernacle is still the meeting place of heaven and earth because God is here present in the Eucharist. Okay, those, those are the big ones, for some reason, the most confusing ones. Other ones that are just helpful to think about, Jesus, just the very fact his name means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves, is just really, really cool, especially when we're hurting, especially when we're sorrowful, especially when we're confused. Like, when we talk about, like, the anointing of the sick, the first thing we should talk about is Jesus' vocation is Yahweh's saving touch on the earth, right? That he, he's coming to, to be God's salvation, God's saving power, God's healing touch to the earth. Um, Satan, devil, Lucifer. Same guy, different names, right? Lucifer is his angel name, right? Lucifer, light bringer. He, that was his, his, when he was uh, fighting for the good team, right? Satan means the accuser, or um, it, it, it's basically like the, they didn't have this back then, but it's basically like the, uh, nah, what do you call it? Not public defender, the opposite. Prosecutor, thank you. Michelle would know this. Yeah, the prosecutor. Uh, you know, it's his job to show up and be that guy, Job. He's not as good as you think he is. I can prove it, right? And God's like, okay, cool, try, right? And then he does all the bad things, and then he's like, have you noticed Job's still not mad? He's like, that's only because you haven't touched his skin yet, right? You know, you start tearing his flesh up, and then he'll mock you to your face. Okay, fine. So he lets him do it, right? And then that's where the, the story of Job really takes off. There's Job having lost everything, even his health, and, and he's still, you know, arguing, you know, that I have not turned against God. That's the work of the Satan, the accuser, the enemy. And then devil, you might know, comes from Diabolo, and that comes from literally to throw apart in Greek, so who does, who does the devil work on first? Split up the man and woman. Just talk to the woman, right? And get her to, get her to, to fall for this. And then she'll convince, convince the man to eat from the tree, right? Then split the, the man and the woman away from God, right? Let's do that, right? And then as time goes on, split the brothers up, right? Cain and Abel. And then eventually split all the peoples, right? We'll get them to try and build this big tower. And, you know, God reasonably, justly splits up the, the people, but who tempted him into that? That was the devil. And then who turns them against each other and has them fighting each other? The devil, right? He's the divider, the separator. Um, hmm, so many other words here. I'm, I'm running short on time. Holy, one of those words we use so much. Holy means different. Um, so, like, in Latin, we get sanctus, where we get, like, sanctuary, even means to sacristy, right? You guys um, are striving to be saints, right? Um, we, we want to be sanctified by the sacraments. Awesome. All those good things. But you go back to the Hebrew, and the word is kadosh, and kadosh means different. So in that Isaiah 6 moment where Isaiah sees all the angels around the throne and uh, they start singing, um, they're not singing holy, holy, holy. They're not singing sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. They're singing different, different, different. Right? And if you don't know this, Hebrew doesn't have comparative and superlative. There's not, like, smarter and smartest or, you know, uh, tastier and tastiest, right? If it's, if it's more of something, you just call it good, good. And if it's really good, you call it good, 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 right? Uh, in fact, when God made the earth, it's good. When he makes man and woman, it's good, good, right? It's, it's, better, than, it's, it's better than bad, it's good, right? Um, and so, he, so that's what happens. So when the angel is saying, He's different. He's so different. He's so crazy different than anything you can fathom, Isaiah. 
this is a different world, this is a different realm, this is a different kind of being. Let me tell you how different he is from you. That's the song of the angels when they're doing that. And that makes sense, right? Because when we talk about something being holy, we mean we do set it aside differently, right? You know, so this is a church. It's blessed. It's, it's a sanctuary, literally, and it's sanctified, right? You don't throw the football around in here, right? That's why we expect people to be, you know, quiet after church, so they're not always that. We wish they were, right? Um, you know, my chalice, it's holy, right? I, I don't drink Kool-Aid out of it, right? I don't treat it like a big gulp, right? It's set aside for certain kind of things, right? And then saints, who are saints? They're people who are different, right? You know, we always think like, oh, Mother Teresa or, you know, uh, Padre Pio, whatever, they must, you know, must have been neat to be around. I don't know. Holy people sometimes are intense. Sometimes they scare us. Sometimes when them, shh, quiet. Just give things their time. And they're like, no, let's do it now. Let's change things now. Get the Pope back to Rome, Catherine of Siena says, right? You know, and you're like, Francis, put your clothes back on. I know you want to be poor, but holy cow, dude, right? You know, saints are intense people, right? St. Paul, I have no doubt, was not the easiest roommate to live with, right? Like, we, we get enough of his personality through the letters that we can bet that he's, you don't want to, like, sp- split rent with that guy, right? But he's an amazing guy, and you need that personality to go face down everything in the world. So when we hear holy, it's okay to think of our ideas of holy, but hear different when you, when you hear it. One last one, because I've already gone pretty long here. Um, parish. When we think of a parish, we think of our cozy little home church, right? And it's our parish, right? It's our people. We might have even grown up there, but certainly this is where our, our kids got baptized, and maybe we got married there. It's where we've, you know, flipped pancakes for 20 years, you know, with the Knights of Columbus. It's where we've, um, you know, done all these sort of things. What's funny, though, is the word parish and parishioner come from the word for stranger. So in 1 Peter, there's a point, and you might have seen the line before, where he talks about how we are strangers and sojourners, that we are foreigners, right? And the way that even the Old Testament talks about these kind of foreign people who, who float through your camp, right? And how you have to treat the stranger in a certain way. You have to welcome, you know, the, the alien even in your midst, right? And the word is para oikos. Oikos is house. It's also yogurt. No, I'm kidding. The yogurt that is oikos means house, right? So like just like all the, all the tortillas have like a grandma on them to show that it's, you know, happy family, you know, local recipe tortillas. Oikos yogurt is trying to give you the same feeling with your yogurt. It's house yogurt. It's your yogurt, family yogurt, right? So it's, it's appealing to that. So para oikos means parallel to the house, outside the house. Not totally separate, not in the desert, but not quite in. That's why strangers and sojourners or resident aliens is what they sometimes get called in in the Old Testament, right? Somebody who maybe pitches their tent outside the house, but not somebody who stays. And that's really interesting that that's the word that eventually comes to mean parish, um, that we pick up and turn into parish and parishioner. It's somebody who's in this little camp outside somebody else's door, right? And that kind of actually is a cool image to be like, you know, who are we? We're people that have, we're like a little refugee camp in the world, 
right? Who are your co-parishioners? They're the other people who have found a place to put up their tent near each other. And we've got to look out for each other. We're going to share our food with each other. Um, we need a, some rules for ourselves. We've got to find some, like, leaders and stuff like that. But we also know at any moment we need to strike tents and move on to somewhere else because this is not our abiding city, right? This is not our final resting place, right? And that's actually a really cool image because it does give you a sense of family and sticking together, but it also gives a sense of, like, this is not permanent, right? This is not the, this is not the only thing, and don't become so attached to it, you know? We have parishes in this diocese that have, like, 24 families, and we keep them open because every time you threaten to, like, close them, people threaten to shoot you, right? Um, and so it, it's because they've kind of tried to treat it as the home, the oikos, and you're like, but you're not in the oikos yet. You're para oikos. You're outside. You're, you're, you're in the, the refugee camp on, on the outside. And if you have to strike your tent and go somewhere else, that's okay because you have what matters. Jesus is with you forever. The sacraments are with you forever. You've got your Christian faith. It's okay to strike tent and, and go somewhere else. It's okay to, to say, I can move my, my little family here um, because I know that I'm part of a bigger family, and that's okay. 